This episode is part of the Business 101 series, featuring faculty and collaborators of Lundquist College of Business at the University of Oregon. So these infrequent high-stakes scenarios, if that's the only time we negotiate or view ourselves as negotiating, then sure, yeah, it makes sense that we feel a little bit of anxiety when we think about negotiating. But what I like to do is, is spin it around and emphasize to people that, no, you're negotiating all the time, every day, multiple times a day. Welcome to the 101 Podcast, the podcast with the quest to know and enjoy the 101 of everything. Each episode, we talk with one professor and dive into their 101 class, starting with the basics and moving beyond into stories, cutting-edge research, and always seeing how each topic matters so much for our lives. I'm host Troy Campbell, an assistant professor here at the University of Oregon, and today we dive into the 101 of negotiation. As this is an earlier episode, editor Alec over here, and I wanted to talk about the genesis of this podcast. So we started this podcast because like many people, I wanted to know the 101 of everything and spend time in the best classrooms. And also I wanted to make a podcast that was fun, but also followed true solid learning principles. And in this podcast, I wanted to answer the questions that you and I and everyone probably always have had about these topics, as well as questions we've never thought to ask. A podcast that is a place of immediate learning and greater discovery. Finally, I wanted to give people a backstage view into the world of academia and all its wonders, difficulties, and oddities. So many of us spend so much time in education, but we never really get to see the process behind education. Hopefully this podcast can fix that to some degree. In sum, I wanted to learn and share in the learning with others because I firmly believe that when we learn the 101 of anything, it makes us smarter about everything. So on today's episode, our professor is David Wagner, a management professor who's an expert on work-life balance, sleep, and emotions and goals. He's a beloved man on campus with a wonderful work-life balance, excelling as a professor and a researcher, but maintaining a lovely life with his wife and children, to his rough and extreme mountain biking, to his classy piano nights at his house. Today, he'll talk about negotiations, revealing how it happens more often than we think and how it can often be a lot kinder than we think, though we do touch on hardball tactics. We get into the classics and beyond from used cars negotiations to married couples to Disney buying Star Wars and even negotiating for more guacamole on a burrito. He talks about how to have better personal negotiations and how better negotiations can help the world. We also get into David's distinctive class structure, which has people negotiating everywhere, including Starbucks. Also on the pod, Alec and I enact a negotiation between Marvel's Iron Man and Nike's Phil Knight. And in Drinks After Class, we talk about negotiating with significant others and professors and beyond. So let's get into it as we dive into the 101 of negotiations with Professor David Wagner. Hello, I'm Troy Campbell, and I'm here with Professor David Wagner. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. Happy to be here. So today we're going to talk about a word that scares some people, which is negotiation. First, how about you give us a short definition of negotiation, and then we'll get into why maybe it's not so scary and why maybe it's a whole heck of a lot more useful to our everyday experiences than we thought. Absolutely. Well, I I think you'll see that it isn't such a scary concept. So to jump right to it, negotiation is finding a solution to a conflict or coming to an agreement about some sort of decision or some sort of issue that you're facing. So let's start off with an example that we all think about with negotiations, which is 
you're selling a car, you're buying a car. And so you have a personal example that sort of turns the class example on its head a bit. As I was approaching the end of grad school, I was getting prepared to move overseas to my first job. And I had a car. It, it still had some, you know, still had some life left in it. So I, I put it up for sale. It turns out I had a buyer. Buyer showed up at my house. When we think about negotiation, in particular this sort of situation, it's a uh, what we often call a distributive negotiation. We haggle over price. Every dollar that I get on my side is a dollar out of his pocket, right? And so I went back and forth with this man, and eventually we arrived at a price that I, I thought was fine. There was some value there for me, and, and I, he obviously thought it was fair because he was willing to pay that much for the car. But then it occurred to me that we could actually, well, perhaps improve the situation for each of us. I was moving in one month or in one week, and if I sold the car today, that would mean an entire week without a car. It was the only car that we had. And there were a lot of things to deal with before we left the country, before we moved everything that we owned to an entirely new place. And so I asked the man, I said, how would you feel about perhaps finalizing the deal today, but then actually handing over the car? I'd hand over the car in a couple of days or maybe in a week. And he, he thought about that for a second. And he said, well, you know, I, I'm actually leaving for a couple of days. I wouldn't need the car and I'm not in a big rush. And so we were able to work out a deal whereby I was actually gave him a, a discount on what the price was. I said, you know what, I'd be happy to have the car for another week. It would allow me to, to get all these other things done. And that was really valuable to me. And so I actually knocked a couple hundred dollars off the price. He was happy at that because he paid less for the car. I was happy because I actually got to use the car and, and avoided all the stress that would have come with not having a car and trying to wrap up all these loose ends before I left. And so we have a bargaining situation where instead of every decision, one person losing ground and one person gaining ground, we've expanded and both parties are gaining value from understanding a new option or interests or something. It seems like this might be something that there's a handy-dandy academic vocabulary yes. word for. Troy, you're spot on. Of course there is. We move in this situation, I move from what we would call a distributive bargaining situation, simply haggling over one issue, to an integrative negotiation. And that's a situation where you have multiple issues, and for each of those issues, people have different preferences. And so in this case, there was the issue of the price, and that's pretty clear. I prefer more money, he prefers to pay less. The other issue was time. And it turned out that there was really little cost to him in waiting. And for me, there was a huge benefit by keeping the car for those additional five or six days. And that's ideally what we look for when we're negotiating trying to find ways where we can actually enhance value, where we can actually make the negotiation a situation where everybody walks away better off than they would have had they simply negotiated in this zero-sum type approach. And so in this integrative approach, you're opening up sort of this understanding of other interests people might have. To put it a different way, to be able to achieve these integrative negotiations or these integrative outcomes, you need to surface the interests. You have to understand the interests of each party. So we have various issues, and then if I can understand what your interests are, and by interests I mean the underlying motivation, what what drives you to that negotiating table. The other thing you wanted to bring up is that negotiations are everywhere, and they're part of our life all the time. It isn't just these isolated business deals. We live in a world where daily we are negotiating. So these infrequent high-stakes scenarios, if that's the only time we negotiate or view ourselves as negotiating, then sure, yeah, it makes sense that we feel a little bit of anxiety when we think about negotiating. 
But what I like to do is is spin it around and emphasize to people that, no, you're negotiating all the time, every day, multiple times a day. What I, what I try to do when I discuss negotiation with people when I teach a class is to try to get over that hump where people feel like this is a really scary situation or this is something that I, I'm anxious about. And by simply giving them practice, by helping them to see that they've actually negotiated a lot and they do it every day and highlighting, making salient these various examples that they have in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. And that interesting thing, just that if we, we don't sometimes almost realize we're negotiating in these situations or we shy away from turning it into a negotiation. Hmm. And so I think you have a good example you've told me about yeah, movies. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so uh, my wife and I, we um, occasionally will we'll go out to a movie, we'll get a sitter. And of course, we have to decide which movie in particular we're going to. And when I'm going out with my wife and, and we have this time together, to me, it's not really that important, typically. Right. On occasion, there's a movie that, that I really want to go to. But there are times where my biggest interest is not which movie we go to, but it's just spending time with her. And so when we approach those situations, that's the situation where I, I tend to accommodate. And the negotiation is, well, do you care which movie we go to? I don't care which movie you go to. You tend to, or you, in this situation, you care a little bit more about the movie. So let's address your preferences there. My preference is that we spend time together, and that we not eat at a chain restaurant serving American food that night. And so maybe I pick the restaurant, and it's of a certain variety, and she chooses the movie, and we get to spend time together, so we're happy about that. And so it's, again, it's a, it's a pretty mundane example. It's not really that groundbreaking, certainly not anxiety-provoking, but it's a negotiation. And you've also talked about this idea that negotiations in of themselves can be valuable, almost almost a good. As you go through this process with someone and you see that issues that you care about are being dealt with respectfully and collaboratively, I think, and, and the research would back this up, that it, that it builds trust. You build rapport with someone. And so to the extent that you can actually work through challenges and that you can work through what might be viewed as, you know, some people might view negotiation as an argument or as, as haggling. Really, you can actually build relationships yeah. by doing this because it's something that's important to each of you. And so you work together to arrive at a, at a mutually agreeable outcome. And so everybody's better off. You've worked together. You've accomplished something together. And that, that can actually strengthen relationships and build trust. Research shows that we like people who have taken our perspective. And by engaging in negotiation, we can see that. And then we can also sometimes see, oh, that's why you're not budging on that, because you have surfaced this interest I was unaware that you had, and you seemed incredibly selfish and horrible and unfair to begin with. But now that I know what your valuation is, I understand this. So this is a point of the podcast usually where we do the elephant on the forehead questions where we put on an evil hat and I aggressively ask you things like, isn't negotiations just evil? And isn't this only for people who want to manipulate? And I think uh, to have an elephant on the forehead question is sometimes I bet you get asked, I mean, you're in business. All you care about is making money and you don't care about anything about life and stuff. And you have this wonderful response, which is business and our jobs take up a third of our life. If we do not make those things and we do not spend time understanding how to make that better, then the rest of our life and that one third of our life won't be that great. And then you also have this wonderful benefit, which is you also study sleep. So you're studying two thirds of our uh, of our lives and how to make those good. 
and how those things can then maximize that other third of our life. Probably the most important part of it where we are not at our job and we are with our family and other loved ones. I, I don't want to suggest that I'm anything of a superhero, but I, I feel I feel called to this 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 work where I'm I'm trying to find out what makes for a good work life, what makes for a good life and how work and how sleep and how social interactions outside of those two domains, how those interact with one another. And, and again, like you say, in doing that, I really hope to craft a better world by making a better workplace and, and helping people to live better. And when people ask questions like, what makes a good life? How can we have a better life? I think questions they often overlook is, how do you make the workplace better? How do you help people negotiate what fun things and important things they can do in work or their or their love life or anywhere? And how do you get more sleep? And there's all these sort of little overlooked things that have just a huge impact on the variance of people's life satisfaction and uh, flourishing and thriving. Yeah, certainly. All right. So let's dive into your 101 negotiations class. So if you can envision this classroom full of approximately 40 students, and they've come in, they've done their readings for the day, and then it comes time for them to break up into their groups. I send them out all throughout the building. And what are they doing? They're negotiating. And now to transition from classic to integrative negotiation, here's an example of Phil Knight negotiating a shoe deal with Tony Stark. Hello, Tony. Hope the great Iron Man and Stark Industries are going to do business with me, Phil, and Nike here and get your flying boot over to Nike so we can make the greatest shoe. I mean, yeah, hopefully you'll be able to afford it. Well, I think that we will offer you $2 billion, and I think that will be a fair price. Uh, $2 billion? I, I, think, I think I heard you say $5 billion, really. I, I think it's, I think it's, I, I said $2 billion. Did you not hear me through your ego? Well, I won't go lower than $5 billion. You're Nike, and you can afford $5 billion. I mean, we have our own margins that we need to make. We have to outfit the University of Oregon's football team. Do you see how many jerseys they have? We have to invent a new shade of neon yellow every single time. It is very difficult. Well, I'm not budging on $5 billion. And I'm not budging on $2 billion. So say $2 billion. No, $5 billion. $2 billion. $5 billion. Two, $2 billion. Five billion. Two billion. Five billion. Two. The five, number five. of that terrible movie that you were in. Well, then I guess it's just going to be me and Steve pounding up the court on these awesome shoes. Good day, Elon Musk knockoff. Good day, shoe dog. Oh, I'm so angry. I need to decompress. Oh, good. A new podcast from my favorite university. Ugh, I'm so angry. Friday, for the ride home, play my favorite podcast. Hi, Tony. Hey, Phil. We can try this again? I, I'm willing to try this again. All right, let's do it. So what are your interests, Phil? Well, so as always, I'm interested in evolution and building legacy. But really, I want to help the world, and I think these shoes can do it. They can fly people around for little energy. No wasted space, no wasted energy. That's what we've been trying to do at Nike with some of our lighter, sustainable shoes like the Flyknit. And this is the next step. Well, now, see, I want to make the world a better place, too. Wait, I, you want to make the world a better place? I, I do, yeah, believe it or not. That's that's the, the Avengers' goal a little bit. Oh, 
well, I guess I haven't watched any of the Avengers movies. I stopped watching movies with you after that terrible number two and couldn't watch Ultron because Quicksilver ran in Indidus. Really poor product integration by that. I watched Civil War, which I thought was a Captain America movie, and then you showed up and you were a jerk. I guess I, guess I just didn't know you cared about actually making the world better, Stark. So if you want to make the world a better place, why can't you sell Nike the shoes at $2 billion? Well, I can't sell it low because I need the business image. If I lose out on my business, I can't continue to make money to fund these projects. And the best way to be a philanthropist is to fund your own projects. It has to sell for a lot because people still need to think that Iron Man is the best, especially because I am worried about other billionaires like AIM and Wakanda. So we both have two aligned goals, innovation and making the world a better place. How can we reach an integrative solution? I mean, I could do lots of publicity with you. Yeah, and could you get some of the Avengers to wear it? Yeah, I mean, I could I could talk to Black Widow, Falcon, uh, Vision, and uh, uh, Hawkeye. Hawkeye. I don't think we need all of them wearing it. But but we could we could also sign you a shoe contract. You could be the first scientist with a shoe contract. I was actually going to give it to this really great social scientist at the University of Oregon. Then he did a really bad impression of me on a podcast. But we could give it to you, and this would give you the prestige that you want, even if we had to drop the price. I think that'll work. I think that'll be great. It could also help us make scientists look cool, you know? Yeah, and that would promote a better world. And it's integrative in the idea that so many doctors and scientists are already wearing the cushioned Nike shoes during the day. And then I'll get Samuel L. Jackson to wear them with the line, I'll be in any movie, but not any shoe. Phil, I'm so glad that we were able to find some common ground. Tony, I'm so glad too. And I'm sorry I said that you are a knockoff Elon Musk. You're your own person. Thanks, Phil. I'm so glad that we discovered that podcast from the University of Oregon with that professor who just taught us everything we needed to know about negotiation. Yeah. Learning the 101 about anything really can help you with everything. So again, one of the the key pieces about my course is that not just do we impart and convey knowledge, but we're developing skills. And so students take what they've learned from their readings, from the lectures, and they actually go out and they use it. And this this is really the hallmark of the course. It's, uh, I think, what distinguishes it from many courses, and that's that they have a chance to really apply these concepts in a hands-on manner. And I think by going through a couple of the examples and sort of what the students learn in your class, we can sort of learn through their their stories about how we incorrectly or how we misperceive negotiation sometimes. So how you're setting it up is they're having assigned roles and they're going to things. But sometimes some of the students, as you said, they're nervous at the start and they, they don't always take to the negotiations uh, at the start. And again, that's that's par for the course with this with this sort of scenario. And so what I, what I do is I, I like to frame my class and my classroom and, and the broader community as a laboratory. What do we do in laboratories? We run experiments. And so they have an idea of what might work, of how they can effectively negotiate over particular issues. And so what I do is I say, yes, go out there and try this experiment with this. So what do these negotiations look like? What type of roles are they getting assigned to? So I like to give my students a variety of different um, types of negotiations. Top of mind for a lot of these students, how to get a job, how to negotiate a job offer. And so Several times throughout the term, we will negotiate over a job offer, going from simple to to more complex negotiations. And I think that's such an interesting element that 
you always hear people talking about your classes. They they think ahead of time. Wait, I'm going to go negotiate in his in this guy's class every day. But there's technically no grades at stake for the negotiation. What am I going to learn and get out of this? And one of the things that is obvious to them was, well, I guess I'm going to get to see a, what a lot of different negotiations, I guess, look like on paper and kind of through them. But there's this other thing that you like about your class is that it's like a lab, I think is what you've said. I really encourage my students to view this as a laboratory, to run experiments, to to make good guesses about how a particular tactic or strategy might function in their negotiation, and then to try it out. And that's pulling one of those levers. That's That's trying something out. And again, that's not where you want to live, but you want to see what happens when you pull that lever. Yeah. And in the future, when you're actually in a real negotiation, you don't pull it all the way down. You just pull it halfway, yeah. right? And uh, and I, I think that students really, that clicks for them. They really, they really catch the vision of that. And I think that's so interesting. It's like in college, lots of students experiment with music or fashion or different classes and things. And in your class, what you're saying is on a micro, it's like a microcosm of that is you're inside this negotiation. You need to experiment experiment with different personalities and different perspectives. And by giving people these very rich situations where they where there are no no true stakes, they can get this incredible ability to experience negotiations in an experimental trying on different hats way that all of us would love to have more opportunities to do with that. And you know, so why why are some people who come out of UO so good at negotiations? Well that's because they've tried how did they literally lived so many different ways to negotiate? They literally tried to negotiate in ways that you would have never tried to do. Yeah, precisely. And I, I so I, I try to give them a breadth of experience, also a, a breadth of context. And so we'll we'll do negotiations about a, a job offer. And again, that's front of mind. And so I like to do that, uh, quite a few iterations of that. But we negotiate the purchase of a, a production facility, of a, a warehouse. We talk about buying commodities on the open market. We talk about purchasing a house. We talk about how you negotiate in a situation where there's might be some life sa- uh, life saving uh, necessity. Uh, I, I try to give them lots of different contexts, and by doing that, really open their eyes, broaden their experience, and, and prepare them to to go out and actually live in the in the real world. So your class itself has this sort of notable structure of the students arrive, they fan out, they're in a team room you've reserved. Uh, all these nooks and crannies of the building, and you're walking around and you're observing and you're giving feedback and you're really making the class itself this world of negotiation and experimenting. But then you have a couple things that are also notable in your class that I think we can learn from here on the podcast. You have your, the first one is your find the nose project. Did I get it right? Co- collecting nose. Collecting nose. Essentially what I'm asking students to do is to find the boundary, to see, again, thinking about moving to the extremes, how much can you ask until people finally push back? Now, again, to be clear, the, the goal here is not to see how much you can get out of something or to, to really push someone to the edge, but to realize that we often live below what we're able to, or we, we often get less than we could, or oftentimes we leave opportunities or value on the table. By that, I mean there could be aggregate value that goes wasted. And I think that happens a lot in the world. Because people are too concerned about asking for something that they think might be offensive, when in reality, people would be happy to, to give what, what they're asking. So to be a little bit more concrete, the assignment I give them is to go out and I think recently I said, go out and in situations, some situations that are really important to you, other situations that are really trivial, they could be very mundane, they could be really meaningful, but a whole range of situations, ask for something that you want 
that is somewhat ambitious. So maybe you're you're negotiating about a job and you'd really like to be in a particular office and and they've you know they've kind of suggested that that office is full or you'd like to make twice as much money. <laughs> Um, some of these are very aspirational, maybe ridiculous, but if you don't ask, you never know. And so if you're negotiating over a job offer, ask, ask until you get a no. And if you get a no, say, okay, well, what would need to happen for this to turn into a yes? Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is students, they, they're again, a little anxious because these, some of these situations are really meaningful to them negotiating with a, a, a future employer. It could be with a family member. Um, but I've seen quite a few things where they've ended up with things that they really value they didn't think they'd ever get, but they did because they asked. And of course, there are times, in fact, the assignment is to ask until you get a no. So yeah. there are times when they ask and they get told, absolutely not. Well, what could I do to make it? No, 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 no. This is never going to turn into a yes. It's a no. And that's okay. That's what I want. I want them to find out where those those lines are, where the boundaries are, and to make sure that they ask for, for what they deserve. And if there's value to be had, that they make sure that it's it's getting used. Yeah. And some of your examples, the, and part of the assignment is also to ask for no's in low stakes situations, like, can I have some more salsa on that burrito? Exactly. So again, there are often times where if we just ask for something, oftentimes we'll, we will make sacrifices when we don't need to. Yeah. If we ask, we might find that there's a, a route that's on aggregate better for everybody than you know, a route we might just default to. So again, I want my students to ask. I want them to explore to satisfy everybody's interests. So the, the course is very experiential. We've, we've got the content, we've got the lecture, we've got the readings, we've got these, these practices that they do. Even then, it's limited in the extent to which we can help people to understand these really broad, broad factors that surround negotiation. And I'm putting my arms out right now to show you how broad this yeah. is. And, and this is drawing from Lax and Sambinius's uh, notion of, the, of 3D negotiation. So let's take a moment to be clear on just what 3D negotiation is. Because sometimes Troy rambles on in ways that even I can't handle. Sorry, Alex. So the 3D negotiation is as follows. Setup, table tactics, and deal design. The setup is preparing for negotiation, the learning, and possibly coming in with another offer. Table tactics are the things that are actually done during the negotiation. And deal design is just how the deal is truly made. Things like the contract and what is explicit. So that's 3D negotiation. Back to the conversation. And that is that we often focus on tactics, what happens when you're actually negotiating. But there's a lot more that, that builds up to that. In particular, that talks about the setup. So yes, you're negotiating. You're going to typically negotiate with another individual or a corporation or some sort of entity, right? Sometimes it's two parties. Sometimes it's, it's multiple parties. But before you get to that point, there's the whole setup stage. Who should be there? When should they be there? Should you talk to other parties first? Should you develop your BATNA, BATNA being your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So there's a lot that you can do before you actually get to that, what we call the negotiating table, that will help position you to be successful when you do start negotiating. Does it generally boil down to know more about yourself and your options and know more about the other person's options? That's certainly part of it. That's a, that's a big part of it is, is knowledge, preparation, and getting there. But as you gain that knowledge and you prepare... 
it, it may uh, benefit you too. So, so there's a story of a company looking to uh, develop a partnership with companies in Mexico. A U.S. firm comes in and says, okay, they, they identify three firms and they think, okay, that firm right there, that's the one that we ideally would work with. And they go and negotiate with them. The company doesn't come to terms with them that are, that are agreeable to both sides. And so essentially it was a failed negotiation. So they move to company number two. They negotiate with them. They can't come to an agreement. Then they move to company number three. Once you're with company number three, it's the last suitable company. That's much higher stakes. And it's also not as desirable a partnership. By contrast, if you had said, well, let's negotiate with company number three. It's an acceptable ally here, acceptable partner. In fact, why don't we negotiate with company one, uh, sorry, company three and company two, see if we can work up a great deal. Then by that point, we've got a really good fallback plan, as it were. Then we can go and negotiate with our primary company, the, the, the main target mm-hmm. that we like to work with. That's very different. That's a very different scenario, right? The implications are very different. They see that you have more leverage because you already have a deal essentially in hand. There may be some, some signaling that happens. So again, there's a lot that you can do to set up a successful negotiation. And this all happens before you get to the table. And um, so not to use this example too many times because it gets into the stereotypes around negotiation, but the car is... If you go to a dealer and you don't know the general price or you haven't gone to another dealer and negotiated some price elsewhere, you're just very ill-prepared to maximize your utility from this purchase scenario. Yeah, certainly. And that's part of it. And and also timing. So am I doing this? Do I need to make a deal right now? Do I have to finish the deal before the bank closes or before my flight takes off? Or there are a lot of things that could feed into this. So again, pay attention to the setup. One of the other, so the setups one dimension, um, the deal design is is another dimension, and that is essentially creating deals that, uh, and, and getting creative to generate and put together a deal that that maximizes value, that something that's attractive to both parties, essentially something that you can anticipate. Okay, what's the other person going to say? Well, they're going to look at this and they're going to be able to to tell their superior, hey, this is a great deal for us. This is why. And so bundling those three pieces together, that's the the 3D approach to negotiation. I ask my students to take that framework and then go out and find examples of actual negotiations that have taken place in the public domain, or at least that there's some sort of media coverage. And so, you know, examples of these, uh, one group this past year studied George Lucas and his negotiation with Disney for the sale of Uh Lucasfilm and the rights to Star Wars. Several other groups looked at the, uh, if you're familiar with the, the U.S. soccer team, the U.S. women's national team. This is a team that's won gold medals, that's won World Cups, yet was paid substantially less than their male counterparts. And so there was a, a drawn-out negotiation re- related to that. And so I had, a, I had several groups that, that analyzed this set of negotiations using that framework. And so it's, uh, it's been really interesting to see how students approach this and they actually take this knowledge and then say, okay, here's what we saw. These are some good things that happened, but they should have done these things differently because of these concepts that we've learned. So it's, yeah. it's really gratifying to see them really latch on to things that have happened in the real world. All right, so we've got a class where people are negotiating all the time. They're learning to collect no's in the real world, and they're uh, analyzing decisions as cool as Disney and Star Wars. And how are you going to make this even more interesting by bringing some research into the classroom? Yeah, so one of the, the things that I study, um, do quite a bit of research on, is sleep. And sleep turns out has a lot of implications for a lot of different things. 
one of the reasons why I think that's interesting and why I'm really motivated to study that is because there seems to be this stigma around sleep, yeah. and especially in some of the contexts. So with a, a researcher, a doctoral student at the University of Oregon, I'm working on some projects on entrepreneurship and sleep. And in that crowd in particular, there's, there tends to be this stigma around sleep and that that it's very macho to not sleep. And to be a good entrepreneur, you're not supposed to sleep. And indeed, that's kind of the norm there, that, that many entrepreneurs don't sleep. The issue is that when you're not sleeping, you're performing well below your optimum level. There's been research done that looks at how people perform after a night of full sleep deprivation. We've actually run a study about that and that, that people actually... Didn't, didn't you keep... Oregon students who volunteered. They, they volunteered. They volunteered to be kept up all night, right? And then yes. did studies on them? Yeah. Yes, we pulled an all-nighter, and it yeah. was a blast. <laughs> uh, so so students in uh, in this experiment, half of the students were in the normal sleep condition, or maybe it wasn't normal. But anyhow, they got at least seven hours of sleep in the sleep deprivation condition. They agreed to come to campus. They stayed there all night. They watched movies. They played games. They did homework. And then the next morning, we had all of them, those that had slept, those that had not, came to the lab, and, and they, uh, they did, some, did some surveys. They actually answered some questions. They engaged various uh, different challenges or problems that entrepreneurs have, um, including assessing the, the value and the you know, investability of these various opportunities. And so it turns out that that has a really uh, important impact on the sorts of investment decisions and, and go no go decisions that entrepreneurs make. Turns out that sleep has really important implications for our ability to perceive the moral content of situations. So, is this right or is this wrong or is this something that I should even ask that question about? Turns out when we're sleep deprived, we're not very good at that. Didn't you have a wonderful paper called like "Too Tired to Be Moral" or something? Yeah, yeah, wow. and that's and that's where we found we we looked at it with various different studies that when people are sleep deprived they just they don't pick up the the subtle moral nuances of, of various situations and it also translates to sort of non-moral situations where they're not picking up other sort of potential utilities or nuances of other problem solving yeah yeah exactly exactly and and so it's so it's it's very entrepreneurial not to sleep but potentially it is actually beneficial to entrepreneurs to sleep Yes. So sleep is is extremely important. It has implications for all sorts of things. I'll, I'll float out there some other things like staying on task at work. Cyber loafing is a, is a phrase yeah. that one of my co-authors coined. Uh, when people get less sleep, they tend to slack off at work and surf the web and check personal emails and those sorts of things. They, they get in more accidents. They get injured more. Preventable accidents happen more often. So these are the sorts of things that, that that crop up when um, people are not sleeping well. Yeah, and you have that sort of very creative naturalist experiment way to study it is yeah. daylight savings time. When we get less sleep because of the changing of the clocks, certain things go up in the world that we would prefer not to, right? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, so the, it's, a, it's a great quasi-experiment. The clocks shift, and of course on the day they shift, you only have 23 hours instead of 24. And so we look at the next day as anyone who's experienced jet lag or who's experienced daylight savings time knows that, uh, that your body doesn't immediately adapt to that shift. And so people get about 40 minutes less sleep the Sunday to Monday night following the springtime shift. And, and we find this is where we studied a lot of these outcomes. Uh, most recently, we're looking at policing behavior and how there might be some, some bias in policing that crops up. There's recently research done on uh, the sorts of sentences that judges hand out when they're sleep deprived as opposed to well rested. And so, again, really broad implications of sleep for the workplace. And so that's something that's been very interesting to me. And also, 
that makes it a really valuable thing to study about, right? And so how can we negotiate in the workplace? How can we make sure that we're staying healthy? That even though we have this big project that we're working on, maybe the boss feels like we need to continue working on this through the night. Okay, it would be good to invest the the additional time and effort, but research suggests, and it's pretty clear on this, that there's some decrement in my ability. And so if, if I do push through the night, we'll get some value from that, but hour by hour, per, on a per hour basis, it's not going to be as good as if I were well rested. And so maybe that's one issue that, that people need to stand up and negotiate for or work through those issues with, with a, a boss or with a coworker. So sleep sounds like a valuable resource. Seems like something you might negotiate for? Absolutely. It, sh- it should be one of those things. I mean, I mean, you could imagine a wonderful employee who's doing great work on a project, a deadline is looming, and so the boss says, hey, we need, to, we need to stay late tonight or maybe pull an all-nighter like students in my experiment did. Yes, there is value to doing that. Yes, you put in the effort and the energy and the additional time that night, but it comes at a cost. Each hour that you spend doing work during that time is going to be less valuable than an hour when you're rested. And so perhaps that's something you should negotiate over. It's, and, it's a point of conflict. And we'll also conflict. have all those downstream consequences on your life that you've talked about. Absolutely. So it's not constrained to work, but it actually spills into home life. And, and that's a whole other set of, of issues that yeah. are, again, very important. But Yeah. And so, I mean, bringing up that sleep stuff, it's, it's another example of surfacing these interests, right? This is an interest for you as the company to... Um, have the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an interest for me to have it. And so when you're negotiating, you probably never think about, can I make, can I have a hard, fast rule that I'd never have to work in the office past eight o'clock or something and see if you can make something like that happen and yeah. your life would be happier. Yeah. And you, and you just figure out, okay, what what is it that we're trying to accomplish here? We want a great product. We need to finish this product. It needs to be high quality. Well, if we can accomplish that and I can do it on my terms, would that be agreeable to you? And the boss says, yeah, of course. Okay. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to go sleep now. I'm going to get up at this time. I'm going to make these changes. But again, focusing on what the end goal is. In other words, what are the interests? And you've also done some research specifically on how sleep itself affects negotiations as a way to use sleep as a lens to understand negotiations. Yeah, so this is this is still early stage research and uh, and, and so it's a bit tentative. I wouldn't I wouldn't stake a, you know, whole set of habits on this necessarily, but we are starting to explore how sleep and sleep deprivation impact how we view negotiations. And and what we've found so far seems to suggest that in situations where, and again, this from a person who advocates getting sleep, because for the most part, getting sleep is better than getting less sleep. Uh But in this situation, we found that when people are in a a difficult situation, they have a poor BATNA, kind of a, a low power situation, that when they're sleep deprived, they actually had better outcomes than they otherwise would have, or, or better outcomes than th- we would expect them. And, and what we suspect is that people are kind of backed into a corner, and they're sleep-deprived, and they're, as we phrased it, they're swinging for the fences. They're yeah. taking these really aggressive shots in the negotiation, and in some cases that works out. And so on average, it's it's been working out. But again, this is very preliminary data. I would not suggest that people sleep-deprive yeah. themselves, and, but, but, but it does have some impact yeah, on the negotiation Yeah, and it's one of these process. sort of great examples of the project uses sleep to reveal potentially a mediating mechanism, which is that yeah. the problem that people have is that they don't swing for their fences in these types of specific situations. And so by using sleep, it's just this wonderful way to potentially illustrate this 
problem that people can chronically have. Yeah. And yeah. the answer may not be don't sleep. The answer may be <laughs> here's us revealing this um, problem that you have. And if you realize that and you sleep, you're just gonna you're gonna grand slam sure, it. Sure. <laughs> set, set your aspiration levels. Right. That that's what we would perhaps distill that down to. So with the podcast, we like ending with how knowing about negotiations can help the world and can help us personally. Let's start just a little bit with how it can potentially generally help the world. A little question. Thanks. A little yeah, question, so, yeah. So how is, how is a negotiation <laughs> going to save the world? We see negotiation going on all around us, right? But you have to understand that it, it gets really complex. And you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might get what you need. Okay, so, uh, but it's did not just... copyright? <laughs> did he did he sing it in tune enough that we violate oh, I, those, those were just words. I wasn't <laughs> singing uh, a Rolling Stone song. But the, I think that's a really great example that we have these really difficult challenges in the world. And they're not easy to solve. I'm not going to pretend that they are. We have to, I guess what I'm getting at is we have to understand what people's interests are. So perhaps we're trying to solve a problem, but somebody else may be posturing or somebody else may try to get approval from a particular set of constituents. And so if we understand what people's interests are in a negotiation, then we'll be better able to, to craft a deal that satisfies those interests, even if it's not focused on what we think it's focused on, if that makes sense. The success of a personal life, a community, or the world at large is going to often be, can we negotiate well? Can we surface the interests, understand each other, and negotiate well? And the, so the the answer to how negotiations can help the world is is sort of obvious is that we're always negotiating and that we need to learn how to do them better. And if one of the things that I think happens and uh, you know people look at anything that is sometimes in a business school and they say, oh, that's not that's just about profit. That's just about this thing. If if you are interested in solving any of the problems in the world or or understanding communities and you do not understand how to navigate these waters, then you, then you're not going to be able to solve the problems. And uh, you know I, what I love of the business students that come out of our school as I say you practically know how to deal with the things that you are passionate about. You're just not passionate about making the world better. You know how to make the world better in the unideal, imperfect messiness, which it is. Yeah, certainly. And, it, and it's it's really gratifying to see. I mean, a lot of the students that I deal with are, there are a lot of business students, but there are also students in public policy or, you know, students who are focused on sustainability, students focused on these these various initiatives. And there are, there are a lot of contexts. It's not just about what happens in, you know, in businesses or affecting stock prices or that sort of thing, but everybody's going to negotiate. And again, do we care about particular causes? Do we care about making the world better? What does a better world look like for me? How can I help bring that to pass? And so it's really gratifying to go in there and, and give people the, t the tools and develop the skills to be able to, to do that. Yeah, and I think, I think it's just so interesting how well-intentioned people often fail to succeed in creating things that are good for societies and worlds because they don't know how to engage in appropriate negotiations. Yeah. And couples leave value on the table because they haven't talked through issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes couples will leave marriages on the table <laughs> or, you know, cast them aside because yeah. they couldn't they couldn't figure out what each side wanted. And so really, it's just so broad. It's... I guess if you approach it with the the label conflict resolution, maybe that that allows yeah. people, and you know, this is certainly related. A lot of the same same concepts relate. So, 
it's a really useful toolkit. And, and hopefully by using this toolkit and learning how to use it, we can make the world a much better place. So let's get on the personal level. So what is it that we can learn from negotiations? So you've touched on a lot of these things, uh, but I wanted to talk about hardball tactics. So we are going to, in our life, face some hardball tactics, whether it's from a colleague at work that is just this way, whether it is a, a salesperson, there's some situation where we'll need a resource potentially, and we will face hardball tactics. What are some hardball tactics, and how can we fend against them? Well, I, w- I won't go through all the hardball tactics, but but I think we're familiar with many of them. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people you know, highballing or lowballing, right? They, they throw out a really extreme offer, and it's totally outside the range of a, a reasonable price, for example. Sometimes people might pretend like an issue is really important to them just because they know it's important to you. And so that looks like you're facing off and that it's a just distributive negotiation on that issue. And so they may end up conceding on that point and ask for a, a lot of benefit in return, when in reality, that's not actually an important issue to them, right? Um, there, there are right, lots so of they they didn't they know you need to get it on t- that time is this issue and you they know it's important to you but it's not actually important to them but they'll pretend that it's important exactly, to them exactly exactly and so that relates to that that three D negotiation that you really sort of uh, in these situations if you can understand what the actual things your um, person you're coming into really values yeah exactly and so. So again, these are just two examples of of, uh, of a whole range of behaviors that people might engage in when they're negotiating. Um, many people view these as unethical. They're certainly aggressive tactics. And so it's important, one, it's really important to prepare well. And that preparation, again, means that you know what your interests are, know where you stand, what your alternatives are, how you are going to approach this, um, what what sort of strategy you're taking, where you fall in that dual concern matrix. A lot of, you, you have to understand your situation as you're entering this negotiation. But you should also understand all those things for the other side as well. Now, that, that can be a tall order. But ideally, we want to understand all these pieces and, and how they relate to one another so that you can approach um, in a very prepared manner. Now, if people do approach the negotiation in that way, it's important to be able to, to recognize those tactics, to label them, and to respond appropriately. And so, you know, I'll, I'll tell my students, uh, I share an example of a friend of mine who walked, again, buying a car. So he walked in to buy a car, and he walked out there and looked at the car, and the salesman threw out a price, and my friend took a step back, and he said, okay, I see what you're doing right there. You're setting a really extreme anchor. You're highballing me. So why don't we just pretend that that didn't happen and actually start again? Right, because if you can if you can recognize these hardball yeah. tactics, you can take steps to address them. Uh, other things you can do, you can just laugh and walk away because that's not a good faith negotiator. So, yeah. anyhow, I like to to equip my students to recognize these hardball tactics so that they can defend themselves against them. If the world were a, a perfect place, then people wouldn't be engaging in these tactics, and they'd be actually trying to to increase value for everyone. But that's not the world that we live in. And so I think it's important to be able to recognize and defend against those tactics and engage appropriately so that you can still get yourself a fair deal. Yeah. And so like, so somebody label and point that label out to them, walk away from a negotiation if you have other options from people who seem to not be good faith negotiators. And then that other thing, understanding that when somebody gives you an offer and they say, that's my final offer, my hands are tied, that's it, that the sort of adage, which isn't 
perfectly true, but is a good adage, which is no offer is non-negotiable. Yeah, exactly. And, and understanding that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about um, a situation that a lot of people are in in their lives is negotiating job offers. And uh, in talking to you and in, in experiencing some of these things um, uh, at high stakes level for the first time in my life over the last few years, I've sort of really realized a lot of misconceptions I had about it and that I think everybody else has had about it. There are plenty of situations in life where you are going to be in a difficult negotiation, where it's uncomfortable, where it's stressful, where you're facing a, a hardball partner on the other side, and that's just simply going to be the case. But there are also lots of situations where there's a chance to negotiate, a, a, a chance to actually make things better, where in the past, without seeing it with this framework, that the world's full of opportunities to negotiate, full of opportunities to create value. If we don't take those opportunities, then we're not living as well as we could. We're doing things that, sure, they may help other people, but we could really help them by doing something different. We're doing something that somebody would like us to do, but they don't really care that much about it, and it comes at a huge cost to us. And so if we can identify these situations, if we can be honest with each other, if we can trust each other, then we can actually create a lot of value. We can increase our happiness, our well-being, because we'll spend time on the things that matter most. Whereas if we just let people push us around, if their mild preferences are ruling the day, then there's value that's lost. There's value on the table. There's well-being that is destroyed. So I really encourage the listeners, I encourage each of us to make sure we, we keep that framework in mind, that we try to understand when we're in a situation where we could actually meet our interests and meet the other person's interests. But to do that, we have to have information. We have to surface these interests so that we can help other people, we can help ourselves, and help them help us. Today on the podcast, David took us inside the 101 of negotiation, and he started off by telling us to think of negotiations a little bit differently as an integrative opportunity rather than just distributive value claiming. And he used the metaphor of surfacing interests to explain the idea that... A way to make sure that everybody gets what they want out of the negotiation at a cost that's minimal to them. And he explained the concept of 3D negotiations, which is... Making sure that you not only focus on the tactics, what you actually do at the table, but keeping in mind the setup who you approach, when you approach them, the order in which you approach them, and giving enough attention to the deal designs so that you can actually create value, unlock even more value for all parties that are involved. We went inside his classroom and we learned through his example of practicing negotiations over and over again, the importance of practicing negotiations and engaging in more negotiations in our life. And he gave us an example of a class activity that we can actually do in our own life, which is... If you're nervous about negotiating, go out and start asking and asking until you get a no. Collect no's. It's fun. Find the limits. See how far you can push it because you'll realize that you're leaving a lot of value on the table, that you're leaving opportunities uh, unharvested because you're not asking. And we talked about the idea of hardball tactics and how you might fend against them. And some of those hardball tactics to look out for are... Sometimes you might experience the lowball or the bogey when people say something's important and it's really not. They might throw in the nibble. You've already come to a, an agreement and they ask for a little bit more. Make sure that you recognize those, that you label them, 
that you let them know that you are not going to accept that. And if they're being aggressive, you, you need to stand up for yourself. And we talked about the idea of well-being, that work itself is such a fundamental part of our life that we need to focus on making it itself better to expand our full enjoyment of life at work and beyond. And David expanded on one specific thing that can also make things a little better, which is make sure that you craft the life that you want. Negotiation is a great tool for you to identify what your interests really are. What do you want out of life? Make sure that you get that life. There are so many things that feed into a good life. Make sure that you attend to them. And one thing you might want to negotiate for and definitely look to get more of in your life is sleep. Unarguably, sleep. We don't get enough of it. It has such far-reaching implications through everything that we do. Make sure you get enough sleep and make sure that those that you work with respect that. And lastly, we talked about job offers. And the idea is that job offers from the get-go are meant to be the start of a conversation. They're trying to understand what you want, what you need to be happy, what you need to be successful. Don't view it as an ultimatum, as a, a single offer, take it or leave it. See that offer as a starting point. Surface those interests, get the things that you need to be happy and successful. Well, thank you very much, David, for showing us the 101 of negotiation. My pleasure. Happy to be here, Troy. All right. And now, we're smarter. Welcome to Drinks After Class. This is the part of the podcast where we have a casual conversation full of clarifications, listener questions, and really just extend the chat on the pod's topic. And so for today, we have some listener questions from the 101 class at Oregon. And this first question we have is, how do you negotiate with people from different cultures? Troy? Uh, yeah, also... In the after edit, it is, again, me, the host. You're hearing more of me. But we also hear our, with our wonderful editor, Alec. So that was, the question is how you negotiate with people from different cultures. And so there's a lot of answers to this. Um, but one of the most simple answers is just respect. Show respect and be able to respect the customs of those people. So there's a great scene in The Wolf of Wall Street where Leo's character of Jordan Belfort is really bad at respecting. So he goes into a negotiation situation. And in uh, the culture, in this European culture, you chat for about five minutes or so just about life. And you have a just little chit chat and get to know each other. And he's just trying to get right into things. And sort of just being aware of the customs and culture is a genuine way to show that you are a good faith negotiator. Now, that requires learning. Um, so get at that in whatever way you can, but just in whatever genuine way you can show respect for the culture and customs, you know, learn the proper way to bow, for instance. Yeah. Preparation is really key to that. Yeah. And um, prepar pre prepare to respect people, which is a good thing for all life in general. <laughs> um, so, yeah, sorry I didn't answer every little piece of that, but really that's going to go uh, a very long way. And that's probably the most generic advice you can give for that one. So, Troy, just to surface some interests between us. You're a professor. I'm a student. We're both very interested in the workings of a classroom, yeah. tests, assignments, this grades. Mm -hmm. So how are some ways that we can negotiate <laughs> those very important things for, I'm sure, everyone listening? Yeah. So how do you negotiate uh, assignments and stuff? So again, I think at the end of the day is to understand the interests of the parties. 
And so what is the interest of a professor? Lots of professors really want you to learn. And so when you're negotiating things like an extension or a different option, really what you want to show to the professor is doing this will help you learn the material better and be better. You're not doing this because you're lazy. You're not doing this because you're because you're overworked. You're doing this so that you can learn better. Now, is this always going to work? Of course not. But one of the things you want to go into the situation is respecting the interests uh, of that professor. And certainly as a student, going into these situations, I feel there's a lot of intimidation perhaps in saying, well, the professor set a hard deadline. I have to respect that deadline. I need to get this in by then. Perhaps you don't get the assignment finished by then. So then it's worth it just to ask in each situation to say, hey, I am a little bit behind on this assignment. Is it all right if, you know, could we extend the deadline? I really want to give you a good paper. I'm sure you want to read a better paper to see how I've been learning. And so there's really a mutual interest and and a common goal in the end of this. So, yeah, so it's really this point of, you know, you're coming up and you you actually can negotiate sometimes more with professors than you think. This is usually true in small classes. When professors are in the larger classes, they really get locked into things where they can't make as many exceptions. They don't have time to deal with as many students, which is unfortunate. Change academia, hashtag. But, yeah, so that is um, that is just something to think about is, you know, I'm a professor. I want my students to learn. And uh, one of the things that I actually do in my class is I actually invite negotiation. So in my class, I always have the final project due on Tuesday of finals week um, instead of Friday, when is the latest time I can have it be actually due. And I say to the students at the start of the class, if there is a reason that you believe that this is unmanageable for you, or there's a reason that you would benefit more from this being late because of its you know, closeness to other things, um, or you want to do something more, there's an opportunity during finals week for you to learn more information or get a picture because a lot of my things have that kind of aspect in it. Um, go for it. And just as long as you tell me a couple days in advance, um, so you show me that you are interested in actually learning, this isn't something from you poor planning. Um, and so if that's going to be something for you. Tell me ahead of time. And so for one final point in the podcast, we yeah. wanted to hammer home this idea of surfacing your interest something David talked about at length. It would also be something that would work great for the listener question of how to interact with people from different cultures. I just ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's just an unbelievably powerful thing that we overlook. And uh, so in business, you know, or in academia, we're surfacing interests all the time. We just walk, I just go around campus and I have drinks with people or lunches with people. And I say, what are your interests in the journalism program, the English program, the honors program, the media department? Here are our interests in the business school. How can we find overlapping things uh, that work? And sometimes our ideas are in conflict, um, but most of the time there's something that we can find that really can work together. And uh, part of those conversations will actually lead to a more interdisciplinary people coming on the podcast for 101 in the future. And I know as your involvement in journalism and the podcast world, that is just an area where you have to be surfacing interests with so many different people you're interacting with. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of podcasting is a very popular medium these days, hence making a podcast right now. <laughs> and so there's a lot of different places in the community where you're always trying to surface interests, for example, with the business school, you know, as how can the business school use multimedia to further their interest? You know, but something about kind of going out there as a producer in the world that you have to kind of be willing to hear every opportunity, even if maybe it's something they're not familiar with. I'm not a business student. I'm not incredibly familiar with perhaps how the business school works, 
But doing something that shares my interest of podcasting, shares your interest of educating, you know, finding that healthy balance between the two can help make something that really benefits everyone, even though we may not be as familiar with each other. Yeah. And you have this skill, you have this interest in being a part of that and surfacing that opportunity to other people on campus who do not have that skill is a way to just make things happen, right? Surfacing interest makes things happen. And then the other thing it does is it makes life better. And I think we'll we'll end with talking about just sort of this beautiful thing that David suggests, which is around relationships, even romantic relationships, which is the idea of surfacing your interests. And all couples and myself, I know that I do this um, all the time with my partner too much, is we we talk about what we're going to do and we don't really surface the interest. And if we just surface the interest that is usually we just want to spend time with each other, we'd make better choices and we'd be more focused on that instead of focusing on making sure the food that we're eating or the movie is the right screen size that we're seeing at the theater. That's not the point. The point is I want to sit next to you and snuggle while we watch a movie. And maybe it's a good one or maybe it's absolutely some horrible film that The Rock is in this week. Um, <laughs> he's never in bad films. Um, uh, but that's that's uh, that's um, that's fine. Yeah, it's really just a concept that works from the top down, from big business negotiations to everyday life. Yeah, it's like when you learn the 101 of anything, you know more about everything. Everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, hopefully now you're smarter or something like that. To contact 101, hit up our host Troy Campbell directly on Twitter at Troy H. Campbell or email him at troycamp at uoregon.edu. At the time of recording, we have not finalized our social media names, so this is our temporary point of contact. We look forward to your thoughts, corrections, ideas for future episodes, or whatever else you'd like to chat with us about. The 101 Podcast is produced by faculty and students at the University of Oregon's Lundquist College of Business and by the University of Oregon at large. The views and opinions expressed are those of the production team and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of Oregon. The music of 101 is Open Flames by Blue Dot Sessions and Deviate by Poddington Bear. This has been an episode of 101 from the University of Oregon. Now we're smarter.